0: We found that velocity really matters a lot. Um, the ability to validate as early as possible matters a lot. Um, you don't want to like push a bad model to production. Um, you don't want to wait until your final stage of like A/B testing in order to find out that something is not going to work well. So we found that like the earlier you can validate, the better it is.
1: You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world, and I'm your host Lucas Bewald. Shreya Shankar was an ML researcher at Google Brain and an ML engineer at Viaduct AI, and now she's a grad student at UC Berkeley, where she wrote a paper that we all love here Weights and Biases called Operationalizing Machine Learning in an Interview Study. This is a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
1: I, I think we've all been like watching you on Twitter or Following you on Twitter for a long time. So <laughs> it's exciting to meet <laughs> you. Um,
0: you know, it's funny how it's like every now and then you like run into a Twitter mutual or, <laughs> or whatever. And it's like, oh, like I know you, but I don't really know you, but I know you. Like <laughs> totally.
1: Yeah. Um, we were actually doing a podcast with Sarah from Amplify Partners and we both started hey. talking about how much we liked your paper. And I was thinking, really, like I should. Uh... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I should just go That's directly so to the
1: source. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess maybe if you could tell us, before we get into your paper, which I really want to talk to in depth, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your um, your career and how you got excited about um, operationalizing machine learning.
0: Yeah. Um, as such like a buzzword and honestly, like not the most exciting thing in the world. So it's kind of weird to think like how... <laughs> how I got here um but I started out kind of like doing deep learning research um ML research and adversarial examples because that was the like hot stuff in 2016 2017 um and I had this like moment of crisis when I graduated college should I do a PhD or should I go and be an engineer or go into industry um, and I decided okay like I might as well go into industry because I'm trying to write my statement of purpose on working on robustness in machine learning systems and system like ML system deployment. Um, but I didn't really know what any of those words meant because I had no experience. Um, so I went to a company. I went to a startup that was doing applied machine learning, and I was there for um, a couple of years. And that kind of changed the course of what I believe to be like some of the most pressing problems in operationalizing, I guess, these ML systems is a very broad topic. Uh, I define it as like anything that requires like having a machine learning system, that's serving some output that people use on a regular basis that you don't want to shut down. Um, And I think that's just like a completely different ballgame than uh, just the ML research that I worked with. Um, And there's a lot of problems in there both technically and kind of organizationally, like the processes people use to like on-call processes, uh, things that people do to ensure reliability of their systems. And then of course the tools, the principles and techniques. Um, I found myself really going back to like the databases and data management world in terms of like, how do I create these systems so that a bunch of data scientists can train models um, and that that really led me to I think doing a PhD in databases, where a lot of these problems can, or a lot of these like MLOps ops problems can be recasted as traditional data management problems. Um, Interesting. And, so yeah.
1: What when like going back to you know when you got your first job, we we hear about this a lot. Yeah. But what were the what were the biggest surprises about machine learning in practice versus studying machine learning in school?
0: I think I had a nice trajectory of surprises because I started out kind of as the first ML engineer. And then we grew like, I don't know, like 8x, 9x in my time at the company. And we hired more ML engineers and more data scientists. Um, and my first surprise was that training the model itself, like that whole experimentation to first model is a process that you don't want to replicate with as much human labor as you do in the initial experimental stage. Like when you deploy it, like that's that retraining, that kind of component. you kind of zoom out on your entire pipeline. You want to automate that, and your human attention doesn't go there. Um, it's it's how do you glue together that bottle um, in relation to all of the other stuff you have. So that was like one nice realization that I had. And then after that, I stopped spending so much energy and time modeling itself for the sake of modeling. Um, Another realization that I had was when you have multiple data scientists working on the same kind of model or prediction task or pipeline or whatever you want to call it, uh, all of a sudden, like you need some sort of processes to make sure everyone is on the same page. Like if I try some sort of experiment or I have this like domain expertise around like, hey, this set of features probably won't work well or this source of data is corrupted. So don't try to make features from that. Um, how, how do I like share this knowledge in a way that's not like a stream of thoughts on Slack? Um, and how do I keep this up to date as people come and leave the team that happened a lot at my previous company before grad school? Um, so that there's like a lot of these like small, small problems that kind of built as we grew organizationally as well as grew in terms of the number of customers we were serving, the number of ML applications we were delivering um, or predictions we were kind of serving to different people. And yeah, there was so much. I don't know how to give you a succinct answer to that.
1: Well, so it's funny because you've also had the the opposite experience too, right? Like everybody talks about, you know, the shock of, kind of going from academia into industry, but you actually went from industry back into academia. Were there any surprises, you know, or like sort of like, you know, misconceptions that you saw going um, back into the academic world?
0: I think it's different for me because I also switched fields. Uh, Databases has been a... Okay, machine learning has also been around for a long time, but the kind of venues that have been popular in databases have like been around for a while. The norms are a little bit more well defined, and they're not changing as rapidly as the ML research norms. Um, the community isn't growing at the scale that ML research is growing. So in that sense, I felt like I was kind of walking into a completely different territory. Um, and I think, what i really like about the database community is they're very open and accepting of new ideas and new paradigm shifts and i think it's because they've seen it multiple times before they've seen it like sequel to unstructured data uh, or structured to unstructured data they've seen it from like transactional systems to like olap systems um and now the, like they've seen like web scale all, all sorts of stuff like the map reduce era maybe that's still going i don't really know um So in that sense, I think they're very eager and receptive to work in this kind of ML systems or data management for ML space, um, which I felt that at traditional ML venues, it was almost like you need to like train models in order to have your papers accepted. Um, If you weren't training your training models or like doing model inference, then is this a research paper? I don't don't know. Like I, I think database is just like a better home for kind of the work that I'm doing not to like dis on all the model training work of course but um and, and yeah, why is, maybe... that? is that because you
1: sort of like you, you care about sort of practical real world applications is that a good summary or why Yeah, why does I, data I think there's best... a
0: lot of there's a lot of problems around operationalizing models that are data management problems um and when you do research in that like what venues are going to accept that research yeah. I'm not necessarily training models in this research um so it's less likely I think for ML venues to accept this work. And I'm also borrowing a lot of ideas from databases um, around how I think of models, um, how I think of provenance, how this can be used um, kind of to solve a lot of like observability problems, um, things like that. Well, so then,
1: you know, you you wrote this really fantastic paper, which we'll definitely link to. I was almost thinking maybe we should make a required reading before listening it's- to this podcast <laughs> so we can kind of get into the details. But yeah. you, know, you wrote this paper on, <laughs> on on operationalizing machine learning. And um, you know, you went out and interviewed a whole bunch of practitioners and kind of like, you know, summarized the field, which is something that I always try to do. Like, I almost feel like this podcast could be called like operationalizing you know, machine <laughs> <Sure>. learning. <laughs> um, sure. and, um, and I thought you really put things in a like, really well-structured, really interesting. And Surprising results that showed that you're really getting deep with the the people you're interviewing. Um, but I'm, I guess, maybe before we get into it, could you maybe summarize the the kind of key findings of the paper, and then we can for the folks that haven't read it, and then we can dive into yeah. the nitty gritty.
0: Sure. Um, so we interviewed around 20 practitioners, um, and the criteria was that they have worked on or are working on a model that's being used in production. So basically it's serving some predictions or some output that customers are using and somebody will get an alert if the system breaks. Like that's kind of our definition of production. Um, and we interviewed people across company sizes and across applications like self-driving cars, banking, whatsoever. Um, and we found, we, we looked for common patterns across people's interviews. We found four kind of high level um stages of their workflow around experimentation, um, like the evaluation and deployment, um, monitoring and response, and then data collection, which wasn't often performed by um, the ML engineers that we interviewed, but it was like a critical part kind of, of the production ML pipeline. Um, so we identified these four components, or these four stages. And then we also identified kind of what are the kind of variables that govern how successful their deployments will be, like what are the things to think about whenever evaluating tools to use in each of these stages? How do I know if I'm on the right track to a successful deployment? Um, And we found that velocity really matters a lot. Um, The ability to validate as early as possible matters a lot. Um, You don't want to like push a bad model to production. Um, You don't want to wait until your final stage of like A-B testing in order to find out that something is not going to work well. So we found that like the earlier you can validate, the better it is. And then finally, the last V is versioning, um, which is how do you manage all of the different versions of models that you're going to have as time goes to infinity? Um, How do you think about kind of all the edge cases or corner cases that your system must respond to? Um, and maybe that's like slapping on a different version. Um, if you come from this customer or you come from like this population, we'll give you this version. Um, and, yeah, like managing that, right is like a pain point. Um, so that was that's kind of the high level finding. And so I guess
1: you know, you obviously have a fair amount of experience in this already, like having kind of done this job um, yourself, and you're you're pretty active on Twitter and kind of in the conversation around, um, this for for quite a while. Did, were there parts of what you heard that surprised you?
0: Definitely. um and selfishly, I think I conducted this study so thoroughly and like as like a research thing that took like one and a half years that we kind of been on the side. Um, I did this because, like, I was so afraid that I was leaving industry and going into academia and then going to go into a bubble and try to build systems for people and not know what I'm doing or whether this is useful. Um, and what I did not expect was to just like kind of change my research agenda and direction. And one concrete example of this is distribution shift. I used to believe, well, I, it's, maybe is a problem depending on how you define it, but the idea that if you have this static model in production, um, like a static set of parameters or a function that's being called on some features, and these features are changing, time is going on. Um, at some point, right? You that this is like the classic uh, view staleness problem in databases, right? You need to refresh your views to keep up to date with the underlying data. If you think of a model as a view on a table, like the same thing exists. Um, but I think a lot of the ML literature, or even um, things that I've been thinking about, are how do I make my views like robust to these? I don't know changes in the underlying distribution. Um, and in practice, like, sure, that's like great. But if something as simple as recomputing the view or retraining the model solves my problem of staleness, then why don't I just do that? Um, and you'll find that at these like very large organizations like Meta, Google, um, Amazon, et cetera, that they're simply retraining their models like six, seven, eight times a day um, or even every hour. And distribution shift is not their problem Um, in this setting when you're retraining all the time, like retraining on corrupted data becomes a problem. So how do I make sure that my data is clean and corrupted? How do I identify um, when to block a retrained model from being promoted back to production? Like all these sorts of problems. uh, It's like, oh, these are very interesting research problems. But this is not what I thought of distribution shift to be. Um, hopefully that answers your question. I can totally. think of others. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the people that
1: you were talking to, were they kind of like individual contributors building models? Is it more like managers? Was uh, We often see like a separate ML ops um, yeah. team that's sort of doing the infrastructure while other people are kind of doing the training. Like who were who, who the kind of folks that ended up in your, um, in your study?
0: we required that everyone was an ml engineer like responsible for a model or like pinged when uh the model predictions are bad or someone's complaining at some point in their career some of them had switched to the infrastructure building side some of them had become managed i think two of them had become managers um and that's like written in the paper um but everyone there like acutely knew what it was like to have like put a model in production and somebody complained about the predictions. Um, and that's really what we wanted to drill into like, all right. And so like, what did you do to fix this? What does your team do to fix this? Um, yeah. Like simply retraining the model often fixes it like 80% of the time. These ML engineers have so much on their backlog. Like if they can kick off a retrain and get to something else on the backlog and it works 80% of the time, that is going to be the solution. That is the best solution. Um, I don't. I feel like more ML researchers should know this, <laughs> but we could be. Maybe I'm biased.
1: Were these people mostly doing kind of unstructured data? Like one of the big dichotomies that we see is like structured versus unstructured. Where like unstructured, you often get more, um, you know, kind of neural net techniques. You get uh, you know bigger models. You get almost like a totally different stack in many cases. Did did yeah. you observe that too?
0: Um, definitely we talked to some people who had very image heavy, like self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles is a good example of this. For sure. Um, and they're definitely using neural networks. I think when drilling though into like data quality, um, and this kind of like data management, I think people tend to think about like relational data management. Like how do I manage the embeddings or how do I manage like tuples, um, I don't know if we've like gotten to the place where we're thinking about like traditional data cleaning and data quality in terms of like images or like other unstructured data um but we didn't focus the interviews too much on that
1: were people doing a lot of um exploration of features like did did feature stores show up much in your in your interviews
0: (laughs) so we we explicitly went into this not wanting to hit the buzzwords just to see what buzzwords would come out. Totally. Um, feature stores were almost never mentioned. So, Interesting. <laughs> why, why do you think that is? I think people thought about the idea of, like, a feature table or a feature service. Um, but very few people said the term, like, feature store. Uh, what mattered to them was just, like, having features that were available for them to query and, like... Oftentimes at organizations, it just happens to be a cron job that's like populating features in, I mean, obviously not at like meta, they're not going to have like a Postgres table of features, but in a lot of like mid-sized cases, mid-sized companies where right, you can have Postgres table of features and you can have a cron job that recomputes features um, every day. And that's fine. And I think it ends up going back to this like view staleness problem, right? Like how stale is or how stale does it need to get for your business to experience some like performance hit um it's not like yeah i don't know if like you need to be computing them on band all the time yeah
1: uh-huh. um i guess I, I i sort of i love your um you know your kind of simple categorization of like data collection experimentation evaluation and 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 monitoring and response. I guess um did it feel like of those categories, you know, I think you said the data collection was usually like a different team. But where where was your um where were your respondents spending most of their time and where do you think they felt like the most um pain was?
0: Um because all of the pipelines that they talked about were uh, deployed pipe or like already in production. Um, Mm -hmm. people did not focus on experimentation as much. I imagine that this is not representative of the ML community at large. I think there's like a lot of people who are still working on getting their like first uh, production pipeline out there. Just to Um, be clear, none
1: of these questions are (laughs) leading. We're not... uh... (laughs) I
0: I just want to say like, this is like definitely a biased subset towards like production pipelines. Um, I think the evaluation and deployment... Actually, I think monitoring and response, oh, it's hard. Fifty fifty on those. Um, just based on like the annotations of the interviews that we did or like the codes and how we grouped them. It was 50 fifty-fifty on those two. And they often like link into each other. Um, people will talk about like problems with uh, monitoring stage deployments. So does that fit in monitoring or stage deployments? I don't really know. <laughs> um Totally. But I think it's definitely like a big pain point evaluation and beyond.
1: And I guess one of the like the key findings here is that like, you know, kind of monitoring for data corruption or sort of catastrophic errors is more important than monitoring for data drift. But you'd sort totally. of imagine that monitoring for, you know, data corruption would actually be kind of a lot simpler, right? Like why why is that what makes that so challenging to, to do in production? F-
0: I'm- writing a paper on this based on some work with meta um but in the limit like people only add features to a model they don't remove features so what happens with these models ends up getting like hundreds of features to thousands of features to ten thousands features um so that's one thing you've got models in production with tens of thousands of features another thing is that people are coming and going into in these organizations like the ml engineer who built the model does not exist at the company anymore um, and the model is still in production. Okay. So couple that with existing like data monitoring or data cleaning solutions, which is defining schemas for all of my features, like bounds, acceptable, like of acceptable values, um, types for each one of them. Um, great. Who is going to do that and maintain that as these feature tables ev- of art, like as these pipelines evolved, I don't know. Um, the other thing is because you have so many features, the probability that at least one record and one column is corrupted is so high. Um, and then you get this problem, right? Like we talked about in this paper of like, just the straight alert fatigue, right? It's so painful. Um, like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if just like a couple of records are corrupted in one tuple, the problem, or sorry, in one column, the problem is like, again, when does it get so bad that it brings down the business? Um, and how do I find that pretty precisely?
1: You know, it's funny. Yeah. I, I'm I'm like nodding and I, I've like lived this myself, you know, like many, many times. That's so why I, I totally agree. But I'm actually kind of Is thinking it... if I hadn't lived it, it might not be obvious, you know, how this happens. Yeah. Is there like a concrete story maybe you could tell about like how, a feature gets corrupted in production and the havoc that it that it causes?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to give a... I feel like this is like a question where people will attack me for any answer. Like if I get give an example of like a Meta or a Google, they'll be like, oh, but not every company is a large company.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, but okay. I think the story just sort of okay. illustrates the, the chain Great. of events. Not that, you know, of course we're all sure. so smart that we never have bugs, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sure. I think, uh, I'll I'll give one example at my previous company, um, which like I, I lived. So we had like, uh, features were generated from different sources. And when I say different sources, it's not just like weather data or whatever. Um, it's like different clients have different data. Um, and then also we have like different data pipelines that are like repeatedly pulling from snowflake or repeatedly, um, generating features um and oftentimes these pipelines will fail because like maybe there isn't enough resources or like there weren't spot resources available in us west i I don't know like things will happen um and these things will all be no and will this corrupt model performance significantly to where i actually see a regression i don't know um but this happens a lot what, like it also happens that like some of my clients like they send me data every day, um, and like one day they send it in a CSV or a parquet. One day they switch the order of the columns, like a, a totally reasonable thing, right? But again, impacts a subset of tuples, a subset of columns. Um, <laughs> I could name a bunch of these. I think this is pretty generalizable to most orgs.
1: Totally. Um, I remember at, at my first job, all the features for some reason, like there's no technical reason this is necessary, but someone started just like naming each feature column with like, a, like four letters, so, like literally like four letters <laughs> for no reason, you know? And so then like, you just kept kept like doing it. So like all the feature names were like, just like, like really like compressed, like word. It's <laughs> so yeah, basically at some point like, that... like no one knew what they meant, but it was, it was nuts.
0: <laughs> Yeah, the stuff like that, like, really just, like, makes it so hard to go back and trace these, like, bugs. Like, why did my model regress 2%, for example? Like, oh my god, there would be a laundry list of reasons why. Just to even go there and try to investigate why would be, like, a nightmare.
1: Well, I I guess, I guess, though, if, if you're, the people you talk to are just constantly retraining over and over, that actually might be one way to kind of avoid data corruption, like provided the way that they collect the features is the same as how the features get loaded into the model in production?
0: Yes and no. Um, suppose I retrain every hour. Um, and when I retrain, I just like fine tune my model on the last hour's data. I split that into training, retraining, and then I split a little bit of that into validation. And my criteria for passing is like, it has achieved like reasonable performance on that small validation set. Suppose that whole hour of data is corrupted. You, It might just be the case that like, great, like on this corrupted data, like I, because I trained on it, like I performed well on the validation set. Amazing, same distribution, put it back in production and then somebody fixes the bug and all of a sudden the performance changes, right? Because um, that snapshot, of data was different from previous snapshots or future snapshots. So I I, right, right. I do think that there is this still data corruption problem. Um, and the challenge is in identifying the corruptions uh, at the time scale that engineers re- react and respond to bugs. Uh, so you don't like put models in production that like won't do well on future data.
1: Uh-huh. I guess one of the the little gems in your paper is um, the the controversy. I forget exactly how you put it. Like like yeah. you, you said, Jupyter notebooks are quite controversial, yeah. or quite a bimodal distribution of responses on that. I'm, I'm kind of curious your uh, take on Jupyter notebooks.
0: Uh, so, I think my take is a little bit biased. I'm I'm not old enough to have lived the history of data management tools like spreadsheets and um whatnot when they came out. But from my like reading of like old work, it seems that these quick and dirty prototyping data tools um were used to tell stories and have primarily been used to tell stories regardless of whether it was done correctly or not. Um and I think that this this is like the case for a lot of data tools. Jupyter notebooks are not really an exception um so while like i might if i want to start a company around like my opinionated like i don't want errors and i want like uh, and no one's allowed to use Jupyter notebooks like i think that's just an opinion it doesn't I-, I feel like it's completely useless to go and try to like prescribe a philosophy to the industry that like has a pattern of using these data management tools <laughs>
1: Oh, but that's kind of interesting because I actually feel like you're kind of putting yourself in a place where lots of people might come to you and be like, hey, Shreya, like what What should I, I mean, people come to me all the time and I think you're more qualified to say like, you know, how should I set things up? Like, should I be letting my team use Jupyter Notebooks? And I guess, I guess if someone asked you, am I hearing you right that your answer sure. would be no, don't use Jupyter Notebooks?
0: Oh gosh, I, I think it really depends on the application of or, or like what company I'm trying to run or what team I'm trying to do. Uh, what are the like engineering predispositions of the people on the Man, team? You're turning into such but an academic. Like, I love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't give a, I can't. But I think that's the point. Like, <laughs> so one one thing about this paper is that like it's an academic paper, so we can't like write all of our opinions in there. Um, but I really wanted to like drive home the point where it's just like the reason that we think that people have these conflicting opinions is because they have different conflicting priorities, right? Like, do they want initial velocity to be a higher priority than validation? That's, like, personal, or that's organizational. Um, I think those values are different for everyone. I think
1: that's fair. I would think that, you know, kind of over time, your priorities would would naturally shift. Um, I mean, especially, I guess, as, like, a startup, founder you know in the, in the beginning you know you don't know how useful the model is going to be you don't know if it's really going to see the light of day even and then kind of yeah. over time <laughs> you know you you really want to start to like nail things down and, and yes. y- you worry yeah, more about th- the downside risk
0: and then you have to like account for this infrastructure or like even like transition mm-hmm. in your organization from notebooks to whatever if you want to deprecate them like we we talked we interviewed one engineer. Um, who they had this like whole um, their their age, their ha- or their quarterly goals or whatever um, were to get evaluation of models out of notebooks and put them in like this standard system. Didn't care. It didn't matter what like CI CD tool or whatever. But the whole point was just like get this in a standardized system so that people would stop like running notebooks as a way to show that. <laughs> And like everyone a different fork of the notebook. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like stories like that just make me like, oh, my God, like no one is working on ML. No one is working on the company, the direct company objective because they're like fighting their infrastructure battles and like, I don't know, dealing with all the tech debt that they introduced from having the notebooks. So what is the trade off? I don't know. Were there other
1: stories like that or like themes like that where there's like kind of a consistent regret of something that people did in the beginning that they now can't get rid of when things are in production?
0: So the people who uh, we interviewed that were like more senior in their roles or had been around for longer kind of just accepted this. It was, it's like, oh yeah, like, you know, organizational turnover is a thing. Tech debt is a thing. Like our goal is not to remove it completely, but it's like, how do we like keep Shipping new things, keep old things up and running in the face of all the tech debt. And I think that's a more interesting question to me. Um, there are a lot of like one-off stories. I can't think of any at the top of my head that were specific to this, like Jupyter notebooks. Um, I guess all, there was one other anecdote where um, somebody spent like three to six months trying to reproduce some Jupyter notebooks um just to like make a point that like they shouldn't use jupyter notebooks within their organization i, I don't <laughs> and then they um uh, their organization had this like push to like this was a more of a smaller company uh, but to get rid of notebooks or notebook usage so again it's like just so polarizing um that's a little funny i mean my <laughs>
1: honest um experience of jupyter notebooks is they're like i think they're kind of delightful but i I didn't like, I, I'm like a little, you know, I'm, I like I predated Jupyter Notebooks, so I was doing like most of yep. my like hands-on research before they existed. So I'm just like a little more comfortable in the command line. So I always feel like a little ashamed that like I'm not like sticking with the new trends, but it sounds like, um, it sounds like there may be a backlash coming to these, uh, these notebooks.
0: I think it's also different like different people are different i'm the type of person where somebody hands me a jupiter notebook or like something and like here are some results i will be like and show me how the results got here because i i will be paranoid at every step of the way we talked about this in the paper like this like paranoia the sense of paranoia we all get um and, and the same thing is like at least the same thing is true for me when it comes to like SQL queries. Like if you give me a SQL query, I want to know like everything that's in your I want to like re-execute that SQL query so that I get the same result. Um same thing with spreadsheets. Like give me the spreadsheets, don't take the like screenshot of the spreadsheet and save it to me. That's totally personal. I I think people are different in their philosophies of how they do this. Um it yeah. probably affects stuff.
1: Interesting. Um I guess what is your what is your takeaway on the whole space of ML tooling, which obviously, you know, I, I run an ML ops tools company. So but I you know please like you won't offend me with, with yeah. your answer here. I'm I'm really curious, kind of like, did did you feel like people were using tools or were they kind of like rolling their own tools? Did you feel like they should there there's like gaps and like missing tools? Were you inspired to like you know, start a company in the space from the feedback <laughs> that you got. I think it'd be hard for me to to contain
0: myself, but oh, I'm curious what your you're there, is. There's takeaways. a lot of there's a lot of companies that can be started from the paper, but anyways. Um I thought that the three Vs thing made tools or at least the viability of ML tools make a lot more sense. Like experiment tracking, weights and biases is a great example. It really 10xs the velocity experience within experimentation like truly 10x is it right no longer do i have to go copy paste my results into a spreadsheet and back and forth between training script and spreadsheet right like it's just nice great velocity experience um i think most tools that i've seen in this space don't really 10x in any of these dimensions Um, i just
1: what are the the dimensions for someone who hasn't like
0: velocity validating early and then versioning um like versioning is an interesting i think there's a lot of people trying to work on reproducibility um and related i i have thoughts on reproducibility but like related problems um but it, it really needs to be like a 10x experience in comparison to what people used to do with versioning um or with one of the variables and i think that that's really hard to do in the ml tooling space people are really trying to find that people are at least in my experience, like simply trying to throw like software engineering principles at ML workflows and hope they land. Um, but I, I don't, if it doesn't really like push one of these variables, then it's unclear that to me it's a successful um, tool. Like this ML monitoring is also a really interesting space because people do care about the concept of validating. Like I want to validate that my predictions are good before somebody complains. Uh-huh. Um, but how do, it, it's really unsolved And like, how do we do this precisely? How do we not give people alert fatigue? Um, I think people will go to a lot of extents to like, like the f- friction of integrating an observability or monitoring tool can be pretty high if you get results, but people are not getting results.
1: And okay, I guess, what are your thoughts on, on reproducibility?
0: <laughs> oh, um. Then there's an interesting paper. Gosh, I don't remember off the top of my head. This this is bad. I should know. But they, they pose that, hey, exact reproducibility is often just like not achievable in a lot of ML settings, um, just because like when you're a data scientist at a company and you're launching the job, like, yeah, sure, you can control your random seed, but like you can't control the infrastructure or like the GPU provision to you um, is like The underlying data that you called from whatever like what matters is getting like some uh percentage wise if you're trying to reproduce a model like i want to get the same accuracy or a similar accuracy i cannot rely on getting the same model parameters um so this this notion quite like i guess It's a little bit orthogonal to, like, all of the uh, provenance and, like, instrumentation of ML workflows to get exact reproducibility. I'm not sure, like, how feasible that is, like, in a Kubernetes environment, for example, or, like, larger scale infrastructure.
1: Wait, so to summarize your position, is it that reproducibility is impossible?
0: Oh, I think we just, like, for reproducibility tools, like, we need to rethink, like, what it means to get, like, reproducibility, uh, like... Tracing, for example, uh, tracing like a data scientist workflow, um, saving the exact artifacts. Uh-huh. Are, are, is that what matters? Like, what is it that truly matters with reproducibility? Um, if I have the artifact, but I can't reproduce that artifact, or like, if I, have I logged artifacts at every step of the way, but I can't reproduce them, is that, does that help me? I, I feel like these are kind of questions that I don't have the answer to off the top of my head.
1: Okay, I can't help but like weigh in on my own thoughts here because people <laughs> ask me about this a lot. I guess I, I think I totally yeah. agree that reproducibility is is kind of like a much less of like a binary switch than people realize. Like I think there's like lots of things you can do that are like increasingly annoying to make things <laughs> like more, more reproducible. And I kind of think that every... And I think there's a real cost, so you shouldn't necessarily do everything possible. But I do think... Most people would stand to gain from going like further along that like you know reproducibility sure. <laughs> trade-off <laughs> curve than they're than they're doing today. So I always try to explain that to to customers actually of like, hey, you know, we we try to make it easy to like save a lot of stuff so that you have, you know, because like where, where most people starting place at least in my experience is like zero reproducibility. Like I'm I'm talking yeah. about like a model they made six months ago. They couldn't even tell you like the state of the code when the the model train, like forget about the data that, you know, went into it. And so it's sort of like, you know, I think, I think every step towards reproducibility is going to make your team function better it's going to help you with governance. Like there's so many reasons you actually would want to do it, but I, I think it is incredibly expensive to get perfect reproducibility. Like, like you're saying.
0: Yeah. I like your definition of like kind of pushing further along the reproducibility axis then the question becomes like, okay, what are the markers? on yeah. this axis. I don't have an answer to this. I'm curious. Well like... if that's
1: your next paper, I'll definitely if <laughs> you come back and
0: no, <laughs> tell us about it. Not my next paper. <laughs> um,
1: you had kind of another um kind of interesting I, I love the I love all the different kind of frameworks that you're introducing. Here I feel like you're really good at sort of summarizing stuff and putting them into simple CEO style frameworks. But you also oh, no. have this <laughs> notion of like kind of like layers that that tooling lives at right could you maybe talk a little bit about that
0: yeah um so this terminology caused a lot of controversy within the authors trying to come up with the names i don't think anyone loves the four layer names that we have made um (laughs) but (laughs) so so i don't know if they're the best but we kind of think about the stack of tools that an ml engineer interacts with Uh um in frequency of like most frequency to least frequency, top to bottom. So at the top is this kind of run layer. Then we think about a pipeline layer. Pipelines are made up of multiple components. Um, So like, I don't know, feature engineering, uh, feature generation, training, uh, train test split, like whatever components you want to have. And then at the bottom, like underlying is like all this infrastructure um, that people use, like their compute, like what is the workflow? kind of built on top of and we kind of notice or observe that when people want to make changes to their workflow it's much easiest to it's the easiest to do in the run layer um it is much harder to kind of like kick something out of the infrastructure layer and replace that and it happens in certain companies um but it's like a big like organizational effort to do it like they all have many meetings um (laughs) like <laughs> it's, it's true it's true
1: um, what would be an example of a change someone might make at that layer
0: which one the, the infrastructure, infrastructure layer. layer yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I think one example is like moving to from like GPU clusters on-prem there. to cloud GPU <laughs> that's one big one um, another one's like introducing like an orchestrator for these servers like Kubernetes um at least these are things that we like I personally experienced also at my previous company that I was at um and like even like the pipeline layer is super annoying to like make changes to like if you have like Airflow Kubeflow as your orchestrator like it is such a pain to migrate that like they like every I don't know like planning meeting We'll be like and should we migrate yeah we know we need to migrate oh but it's gonna be so much work yeah i know like stuff like that where it's just like if i'm a tool builder i really don't want to get into that space because like i'll have to sell so hard to people <laughs> um to switch a tool at that layer um yeah so i guess in that sense like one thing we found is like the open source tools that could be integrated at the run layer like ways and bias is actually a great example of this where it's like um yeah, like a one engineer can like simply integrate that into their pipeline and it will be useful for multiple runs of that pipeline. Like they're not replacing the pipeline layer tool. Um we found that those were the tools that the I guess interviewees were willing to adopt the most. Uh-huh. Um but I feel like they're I feel like we could have done a lot more in kind of like running a survey, a quantitative survey or something on this. Maybe that's like somebody's future workers, whoever's interested in that. So I'm hesitant to like prescribe this as like the end
1: all deal. Prescribe the layers or prescribe like specific... oh yeah the, the
0: layers and the idea of like, if you're trying to build an MLOps tool, don't build for, uh, like, don't try to like... I don't know. Replace TensorFlow or PyTorch; uh-huh. those people have their moat. Um, <laughs> people are not going to rewrite all of their deep learning models <laughs> in your framework. Um, maybe unless you build. What if it's JAX?
1: Maybe the. What if it's
0: yeah? Then I don't want to get into again. I don't want to get into like these like debates. <laughs> the, the but it feels like one layer is easier than the other.
1: <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I I I really appreciate your kind of. Um, open-mindedness about like sort of like workflows and setups and i i totally share it um but you know here we are on october 2022 and like somebody like listening to this podcast you know they probably like what they're i think what a lot of the people like listening to it are like looking for is actually some help in like navigating you know like there's just so many options for for tech stacks like there's like you know like like SageMaker is not the same as, as Vertex. It's not the same as Azure ML. Totally. Um, like, where would you, where would you start? Like, let's, let's put on the example of like, you know, like a startup CEO kind of just getting product market fit, like doesn't have like a lot of resources, but ML is like important to them. What would you, where would you recommend him or to like begin there, um Looking at, at, at a stack. or or how would they think about that
0: um i will say a stack that is tried and true it may not be the best stack but i would recommend like getting like an aws account or something um having some easy to cluster set up if you're working with large amounts of data i have my qualms about spark but i mean spark is useful and people know how to use spark as a query engine on like large amounts of data. Okay, I okay. I can like... What
1: are, what are your qualms about Spark in a nutshell? And <laughs> we can continue.
0: Man, I'm a, I'm like sitting in the lab where Spark was invented. <laughs> um I I don't like the idea or also uh, I think I subscribe to like the database community of like MapReduce as a philosophy of processing large amounts of data is not great because it forces the application developer to reason about record level problems. Like if one record is corrupted, how do I handle it? Um, it also forces the application developer to reason about consistency. Like if I, I'm i controlling the parallelization, right, As if I'm programming like a spark job or Mac reduce job or something, um, I shouldn't have to do that if I'm a data scientist, I shouldn't be controlling these kinds of variables. And this is like what DBMSs are really great for is like they abstract away these like parallelism internals. They abstract away like acid, how people achieve acid. The DBMS is doing that. Um, So in that sense, I'm not a really big fan of this like kind of MapReduce style of work. It's also like kind of inefficient to like, have like a SQL layer on top of a MapReduce layer. on top of whatever, like, the storage is. Um, but that's, like, a separate thing aside. That's not, like, a really user experience thing. Um, I, I like, as, a, as an aside, like, I think it's interesting, like, the whole DuckDB, um, at least, explosion that we see going on of bringing, like, these kinds of large-scale data queries back to the DBMS. I'm curious where that's going to go.
1: Interesting. All right. But I sorry, I, I, I totally <laughs> derailed you. But so you're saying, like, kind of AWS, like EC2, uh, start there. To get
0: an EMR cluster for Spark um, and, like, have some way for data scientists to interface with these machines. Uh, Kubernetes, this might be a lot, but s- some way for them to, like, I guess, access the machines that you have in your computing cluster. Um, so that's one thing I think another big thing is like, once you get to like production level stuff, right. Or if you have data pipelines at your company, you need to have some sort of workflow scheduler, um, something to define like a DAG and then execute those DAGs Airflow is like really tried and true. I know a ton of people hate it, but it will work. It is also known to work in cloud-based settings. they also have a nice Python DSL. To be able to define DAGs. They have a nice UI to trigger the DAG. They have a nice UI to backfill the DAG. So I I would say that's good enough. Um and then on top of that, I think like people I don't know, hire a good like data science lead, ML engineer <laughs> to do the ML stuff.
1: Do you have any advice on on hiring a first ML engineer or data scientist?
0: I wish. I almost want to say don't hire somebody right out of college, but I was hired right out of college, so I shouldn't say that. But but, like the problem with that was I didn't know anything like here I was like writing deep learning models in Jupyter notebooks, saving them to S3 and then like telling other people to like read. No, that's like a terrible workflow Um, or a terrible workflow if you want multiple people to collaborate on the same thing and share learnings effectively and also scale. I think people who have data engineering experience tend to like at least think about the right uh, not just terminology but concepts like slas are a good example of like ml people should also be thinking about slas like what is a minimum accuracy that my product should have before somebody complains about the predictions like stuff like that um how do i schedule things on a recurring basis a lot of about pipelines, you can be casted as like data pipelines, right? So I would hire somebody who has data engineering experience for sure. Um, ideally, hopefully someone who's trained a model. But I honestly think that's less relevant than having the data engineering experience. I feel like I've talked to so many people who have like, who have ML experience, but then don't have any software engineering or data engineering experience. And that's like really hard right, to convert
1: uh-huh.
0: um, when you're starting a company.
1: Makes sense. Well, you know, we always end with two questions. I want to make sure we get them in. So, um, <laughs> sure. I guess uh, one is, um, what is a underappreciated topic in machine learning broadly?
0: Machine learning.
1: Like, if you were to go back into machine learning and and could like you know investigate something, where where, where would you be like wanting to to look more?
0: That is not a data management problem. This, this is an exercise for myself. I think the idea um, of interpretability, but I, I think of it as provenance. Like like the influence functions paper is interesting. was like, if I have a image and I have a prediction of this image, what are the training examples that like most likely helped the model get to this image? Um, but techniques to do this are kind of computationally expensive or are limited to like a single point in the training data uh, or require like a full pass through the training set for every like i think there's a lot of work that can be done there kind of on interpretability but not of the model but like explaining how a prediction got to where it is based on the data that a model was trained on
1: interesting do you remember the name of that paper i'd love to put it in the show notes
0: uh Understanding black box predictions via influence functions.
1: Nice. And then I guess the the final question, which you are incredibly qualified to answer, I think, is when you look at the when you look at the life cycle from kind of research paper to running successfully in production, where do you see the biggest bottleneck or the most surprising bottleneck?
0: Evaluating if this research or this new idea actually provides a worthwhile gain over another solution. Um, is there something off the shelf? Is there something baseline that can get something very similar, or get a performance that's very similar, but not have to go through this headache of like understanding the new thing and implementing the setting? I don't even think we have frameworks to think about this.
1: Um, so you're just saying it's just it's it's painful to try all the different things and see if they actually work.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like, or do we even need to try all the different things and see if they work? Like, do I? When do I? If I'm a practitioner at a company when do I actually pay attention yeah. to some ml research development when do I actually integrate it into my system I don't think that people have a framework for thinking about this so Interesting. at least I haven't heard of a of... big all
1: right well thank you so much for your time that was that was super fun I really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me if you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.